So we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount. You all remember that? Sermon on the Mount. Actually, we're going to finish chapter 5 this morning. Pretty amazing. We're, we're just busting through. But everything that we have read in chapter 5 up to now, we're doing the last few verses today. Everything that we've been reading so far has been driving to this point. It's really amazing if you take a look at the structure and you look at the themes that are being um, de- dealt with here in chapter 5 of Matthew, how it all is driving to a point, and we're going to hit the point right now. Let's take a look. Matthew 5, starting at verse 43. This is Jesus doing the sixth of the sixth of the six antitheses. So this is the last one of this formula. He's redefining the law. He's giving the old formula. You've heard it of old that it was said. And then he is giving his interpretation. I guess you could call it. It's his redefinition. It's his tweak. It's his moving it inward rather than just outward conformance, but now an inward transformance. And so... You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even even the Gentiles do the same? The whole chapter is driving us here to these moments, these sayings. It's like when Jesus was asked what was the greatest commandment, and he summed up the entire law and the prophets by saying to love God with your whole heart, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself pulling from Deuteronomy and Leviticus. And he said, this is it. This is the whole law. This is all the law and the prophets. And the same thing is going on right here. To love God, to love your neighbor, but to take it even a step further and to say, now I'm going to tell you, love your enemy. And this is something that was baking the noodles back then. It still does today, if we're honest about it. We hear these words and they're so familiar to us, they just kind of run through us and we nod our heads up and down. But when you get to the radical understanding of what that really means, then it becomes a lot more difficult. But the Beatitudes at the very beginning of the chapter, we talked about those as being the effect of kingdom on an individual. Those character traits, those eight character traits, are what changes how the transformation plays out in an individual's life in their way of looking at life, their worldview, their mindset, their relationships with others. And he moves from the Beatitudes to the salt and light, that dual beautiful metaphor that he has about the effect that the kingdom now has, the kingdom person has, on everyone around them, on the community around them, that they act like salt and light in their communities. Then he moves into fulfilling the law. That the fulfillment of the law is when heaven and earth pass away. We need the law until heaven and earth pass away. But the Aramaic word there means to cross a threshold, cross a boundary or a limit. So what he's really talking about is when heaven and earth cross their boundaries and merge together. When heaven and earth become one in a person's life, then the law is fulfilled. Well, when heaven and earth become one in a person's life, when the unity 
and the connection of heaven merges with the individual form and function of everyday life, when those two things become one, then we are operating in love. Love is that identification. Love is that oneness. And it plays out in our behavior, in our feelings, of course. But the law is fulfilled in love. And that is the connection that Jesus is trying to get, the tweak that Jesus is trying to get to happen. And then from there, he moves into those six antitheses on murder, on adultery, on divorce and remarriage, on oaths, on retribution that we handled last weekend, and now on loving the enemy. These six major areas in the lives of the people around him at that time and still alive and kicking today, right? How do we see those from this perspective of the law being fulfilled in love? And all of that now is driving to this last verse, verse 48 in Matthew 5. Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. From the Beatitudes to perfection is a complete circle, a perfect circle. And that's the way we need to understand that word there, gamira in Aramaic, that is translated as perfect, but it's really completeness, completion, fulfillment, taking something to the nth degree. That would be the understanding here. A full circle, a complete circle, a perfect circle. The effect of kingdom yields perfect or completed results. And that's what he's talking about here. Now the truth is that we know we're imperfect, right? <laughs> I'm going to ask for like the show of hands that Vernon did. Anyone here think that they're perfect? Now John in the other room has his hand up right now, I'll bet you, right? Because he's got to be different than everybody. We know that we're imperfect. So here's the question. How can you be imperfect and perfect at the same time? What is it that Jesus is asking us to do? How does that work? How can we be both at the same time? It doesn't compute. And so that's one of these lines that either fills us with total fear and dread, or we just put it on the shelf because it doesn't have any relevance to me. I can't figure it out. I can't do anything with it. Therefore, I just have to ignore it. It goes in one ear and out the other. But think about it this way. In Jesus asking us to love the enemy, what's he really doing? He's asking us to love and hate at the same time as well. Really, this is what's going on. So here's the thing. If we can learn how to love and hate at the same time, then we're also going to be finding how to move through that perfection-imperfection paradox as well. The two are going to work together. But loving the enemy, learning to love and hate at the same time, is something that we can physically grab onto. It's something that can happen, but we're going to have to go through a lot of gyrations first to get there. So let's start to see how that works, what actually happens. And we need to go back all the way to verse 43 again. So Jesus says, you've heard it that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Anyone know where in the Bible it says to hate your enemy? Can you look that up for me and tell me the chapter and the verse? Well, if you can do that, because it ain't there. There is no place in the Bible that says, hate your enemy. There is no place in the Talmud that says, hate your enemy. That was the rabbinical writings of the, the rabbinic thought and the rabbinic tradition. So where did Jesus get this? What's he talking about? Every one of these, you've heard it of old said, was a written or unwritten command. But this one, 
Yeah, love your neighbor. We, we know that one. That comes right out of Leviticus 19.18. But where is this hate your enemy? You've all heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. They were discovered in the mid-40s uh, in a cave on the north end of the Dead Sea and uh, in a community called Qumran that most scholars believe is probably an Essene community. There was a scroll called the Community Scroll, or sometimes it's called the Community Rule by uh, scholars. It dates to about 100 BCE or so. And in this scroll, we get the cultural and the, you probably could call it cultic, understanding of this people. Because what they did was take a look at themselves as they called themselves the sons of light and everybody else were the sons of darkness. And their idea was that Israel had become so corrupt that they headed for the hills, they headed out into the wilderness, built their own communities that they could keep pure, and they were just going to stay out there and wait till everyone blew themselves up, and then they were going to come back in and reoccupy the land. And so this is the idea. So all those people, Pharisees, Sadducees, all those unlawful people, they were the sons of darkness. And so when they looked at Leviticus 19, 17, and 18, where Jesus pulls that line from, what that's talking about there is how Israelites were supposed to treat fellow Israelites, culminating with love them as you love yourself. And then they put that together with Nahum 1, 2, where God is talking about the Assyrians and saying that he is going to kindle his wrath for his enemies, and he is going to rain down you know, difficulties on his adversaries. And they put the two together. Okay, Leviticus tells us how to treat our neighbors, and Nahum tells us how to treat our enemies. But of course, we have talked about this over and over again, that in the Old Testament, the writers there are writing through their own ideas about culture and nature and everything that they understood. They anthropomorphize God, let him take on human traits that comport with the way that they saw the world. But they weren't necessarily statements about God's nature. Jesus tells us that's not his father. His father doesn't hold that kind of wrath. Father doesn't make distinctions between those that he considers enemies or those that he considers friends or neighbors. In fact, to God, there is no enemy and friend. It's all one. Jesus over and over is telling us that's not the case. But here in the Dead Sea Scrolls, in this community rule, we see written down, because what that, that rule finally comes to is that they are never to take vengeance on someone that they consider an enemy. Vengeance is God's alone. But they are to keep an eternal hatred in secret for those same enemies. And that was the way they conducted themselves. Now, this was actually more prevalent in the culture around, or Jesus wouldn't have had to address it, obviously. But it was also a part of rabbinic thought. Even though they didn't write in the Talmud to hate your enemy, what they had was the idea that you kept the serpent in your heart for someone who has wronged you. And that meant you kept alive your anger and your hatred for them if they haven't asked for forgiveness, if they haven't make, made amends, if they haven't made restitution. Then it was not only allowable, it was actually a requirement to keep that enmity alive in your heart until such time as the other came forward and sealed the gap. So this is what Jesus is trying to do. He's just summing up, right? He's summing up the cultural understanding here in a paraphrase. It's not written anywhere, but he's paraphrasing, and he sums it up really well. 
This is what you guys have understood. This is what your teachers and your culture has taught you. You love your enemies, the people inside your camp, but not those outside. But he's going to take that and he's going to turn it around, of course. And the first thing is, what do we mean by neighbor? Well, neighbor, even in English, comes from nibor, N-I-G-H-B-O-R. That means someone who's close. Remember when morning is nigh? When morning is close, that's a Middle English word. A naibor is the one who is close. Kariba in Aramaic is the one who is near, <coughs> the one who is close. Now, that was not necessarily who was inside your camp, who was part of your ethnic community. It was just the one that was right in front of you. Now, obviously, these people were making a distinction between the neighbor being those who were of their own ethnic tribe and not the others. But that's why Jesus had to come and tell them about the Good Samaritan, right? Who is my neighbor, the lawyer asks. And he tells this story to show them that neighbor is way beyond ethnic boundaries, religious boundaries, legal boundaries. It's just whoever is right in front of you needing your help, that's your neighbor. He had to teach them that in that space because that's the way they were understanding things. And this enemy, there's a really interesting word in Aramaic, Be'el Dababa. El Dababa, which means adversary, the one who is not close, the one who is outside the camp. And so you have these two ideas here. How do we love someone that we don't like, <laughs> that we don't approve of, someone who's hurt you, someone you despise, someone you actually hate? How are we supposed to love that person? Aramaic comes to our rescue here again because there are two different words that Jesus uses here. When he says, love your neighbor, the word he uses for love is rahem. Rahem is, the root of rahem means womb, a woman's womb. And so the idea is that this love is love that just pours out from a deep center as it would from a mother to her child. And it has all the feelings of affection and devotion and connection and it's effortless. It just flows out of us. But when he says, love your enemy, the word he uses is ahab. Ahab in the roots actually mean to kindle a fire or a germinating seed. Now, what does that have to do with love? Well, if you think about what you need to go through to kindle a fire, you take a bunch of dead, dry twigs, right? They can't have any sap or juice or life in them or they're not going to burn. So you take the dead ones and the dry ones, the little ones, and then you have this little furry stuff, whatever, the kindling that's also dead and dry. And you spark it, and you have to blow on it, and you have to get enough oxygen on it, and you have to tend it. And as the flame actually catches, then you slowly feed it with more dead, dry things until eventually you have a roaring fire. The germinating seed is a dead, dry-looking husk until with water and soil in the right conditions, it sprouts life. That image is what the ancients used for the idea of love that didn't come from a wellspring within. It's something that had to be tended to. It had to start with deadness and dryness and nothingness. But if it was cared for, if it was tended to, it could grow into something spectacular. So loving the enemy is a slow process of becoming more and more identified with that person while at the same time not acting out on the negative feelings toward that person. How do you love and hate at the same time? You let the process of becoming more identified, seeing the, the similar qualities, seeing the common human traits, seeing them as a fellow human being, 
and let that process continue to move through while not acting out on any of the negative feelings that would kill that process and take it out. Take a look at Merton's quote here. And this is from the introduction to The Way of the Desert, where he's talking about love. Because we really don't have a good definition of love either, which is part of the problem. What does it mean to love your enemy? Merton says, love, in fact, is the spiritual life. And without it, all the other exercises of the spirit, however lofty, are emptied of content and become mere illusions. In fact, the more lofty they are, the more dangerous the illusion. Love takes one's neighbor as one's other self and loves him with all the immense humility and discretion and reserve and reverence without which no one can presume to enter into the sanctuary of another's subjectivity. A lot of words there, but he's talking about that identification process. Love demands a complete inner transformation. For without this, we cannot possibly come to identify ourselves with our brother. We have to become, in some sense, the person we love. We have to become, in some sense, the person we love. And this involves a kind of death of our own being, our own self. No matter how hard we try, we resist this death. We fight back with anger, with recriminations, with demands, with ultimatums. We seek any convenient excuse to break off and give up the difficult task. So he's talking about what love is. Love isn't a feeling. Love isn't the behavior. Love is identification with the beloved. When we see them as our other self, then anything we do to them is as if we're doing it to us and vice versa. And if we do that long enough, the feelings generally come. But that's the order. Love is the oneness, the unity, the identification, the seeing the other as the same. Love isn't the feeling or the behavior. At the same time, and of course, some are easier to do this with than others, right, in our lives. At the same time, if we don't act on those negative feelings, then we're able to keep this going. Now, in Qumran, the idea was keep the hate secret. Keep your hatred secret. Don't act on it because vengeance is for God. But here is don't act on it. Don't do any harm until your love finally replaces your hatred and that identification process is complete. By not acting on it, we give ourselves time for that inner transformation, for that fire to actually kindle and take hold. So how is it that we love our neighbor or love anybody? Well, Leviticus 19.18 says, as ourselves. What does that mean? I think C.S. Lewis had the best way of putting it. I think it was in Mere Christianity where I read this, but I'm not exactly sure anymore. But he said, how do I love myself? Come to think of it, he says, I don't really have any feelings of affection for myself, you know, or sentimentality toward myself. But I feed myself, and I clothe myself, and I educate myself, and I make myself secure. I shelter myself. I do all these things for myself without any feeling of affection. That's how I love myself, and that's how I love the other to see the other as worthy of these things that you need and deliver them where you can is loving the neighbor and it's exactly the same for the enemy. It's just harder to do because they deserve it so much less in our judgment, right? 
Proverbs 25 that we read last week is basically saying if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, give her something to drink. And by doing that, you will heap burning coals on their head and the Lord will reward you. That idea of burning hot, um, heaping hot burning coals on their head is the idea of by showing them kindness when they've shown you nothing of the sort, you are bringing to mind the weakness of their position, if you will, and showing them how off base they are. And eventually you can destroy your enemies by turning them into friends. Same idea here. I had, uh, there was a church member years ago who said that there was one of her co-workers that she just couldn't stand. Just saw this woman coming around the cubicle and already her blood pressure was up. I mean, she just had to see her. She wasn't even doing anything yet. There was just something about her that she didn't like. And she had a choice to make. What was she going to do about this? Shun her? You know, treat her with disrespectfully? Well, she decided to kill her with kindness. Ultimately, they became best friends. Now, this isn't always possible. Because you got another person you're dealing with. And if they're not willing to be friends with you, then there's no power on heaven and earth that can make that happen. But if we do our part the way she did, to not act on the feelings that she had, then that kindling process can take place within and the transformation takes place. And by heaping the burning coals on the other's head, that person also went through the same process and now they're friends. Beautiful doesn't always work that way, but we can do our part. And again, it's about us following the principles here and seeing where they lead us. So Jesus is going to not just leave it there. He's going to give us illustrations like he's done in most of these antitheses. And here the first one he gives is bless them that curse you. So he says, love your enemy. I mean, yeah, I, tell you, I say to you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Now, that probably didn't show up on the screen, did it? Okay. Why not? Did I just pull that out of the air? Well, if I had asked Brandon to put up the King James Version, I don't know if you can pull that up so quickly, it'll be there. Now, it's interesting that it's there, but it's not going to be in any of your NIVs or NASBs, because we use NASB here typically, or any of your 20th century translations. So what's going on? And this gets into manuscript families. And see, this is where I can totally geek out, and I don't want to bore you with a lot of details. But just really quickly, because, because it's so darn interesting, um, to me anyway, uh, textual families were something that really wasn't known until about the 19th century. So with all the archaeology that went on in the 1900s, um, many new manuscripts were being discovered. And primarily where they were being discovered was in North Africa and the Sinai Peninsula and these hot, dry areas uh, around Egypt. They became known as the Alexandrian text, text family. So King James was translated in 1611. All right. When you go all the way back to the third century, there was a persecution of, of the Christian faith by Diocletian in the mid-200s that was so severe and so long, it lasted 11 solid years, where they burned everything that they could find. They killed, they exiled, they converted, they did whatever they could because he was absolutely systematic about trying to wipe out Christianity at that point. Well, who succeeded him was Constantine. Constantine just did the exact opposite. He set up religious tolerance and eventually put Christianity on the road to becoming the state religion of Rome by the end of the fourth century. But all the manuscripts had been wiped out by the 11-year 
persecution before him. So he commissioned Bibles to be written, to be copied. But they were all done in Constantinople, the new name of his city. And they all came from the same textual family, which has now become known as the Byzantine text. All right? So they didn't know this. They didn't know that the source documents that they went from were of a particular textual family. Now, the Byzantine Empire lasted for another thousand years. Rome fell in 476. The Byzantine Empire didn't fall till 1453 to the Ottoman Turks, all right? So there's a thousand years where this textual family was being copied and copied and copied, and nobody understood that there were other copies because during the persecution, what did everybody do? They squirreled away all their texts into hidey holes someplace in monasteries and places everywhere. A thousand years later, 2,000 years later, what's going to survive better? A manuscript made out of papyrus, which is just reeds, or even animal skins in a hot, dry climate or a hot, moist climate? See, all the ones that had been hidden away in Asia Minor and some of these wetter climates, they rotted away. But the ones were actually mummified, if you like, in these hot, dry climates. And these are the ones that they were finding. They were older because they hadn't been continuously copied like the Byzantine text. In 1611, when King James commissioned his version of the Bible, there were only about 12 manuscripts that they were going from to make this translation. And this line was in there. But in the older Alexandrian text, it's not there. That's one way scholars know what is older. If it's shorter, it's probably older. Because the longer something goes around, right, the, the more that gets added to it. So it's here, but I think it is beautiful enough and on point enough that I wanted to continue to add it in here. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. This is another form of poetry. I keep saying Jesus is a poet. Get that through your heads. He's speaking metaphorically. He's using the, the mechanics of poetry to get his point across. Hebrew poetry rhymes concepts, not sounds. And the idea here is that those who curse you and those who hate you, you're still going to allow them to partake in your family. You're going to let them partake in your estate in your provisions. That's what blessing actually means to the Hebrews. The permission, the allowability to partake. And so you're still going to allow them to do that. Then he says, pray for those who persecute you. The word pray there in Aramaic, selah. We've talked about this originally a hunting term that meant to lean in, to attend to, to, to be completely focused on. It's kind of like you set the snare and you cover it over with leaves and you retire to your blind and you're waiting on a hair trigger for the something to happen. To pray for those who persecute you was to do this, to lean in, to incline toward, to clear an interior space of focus and presence, to allow the other inside. The first is to allow the other to partake. Now you're actually letting them inside you into this clear space that you're focusing on. For then you will be sons of your Father in heaven. So what are we talking about here? What is the Son of the Father in heaven? Jesus is called the Son of God. What does that mean? In that culture, the Son of the Father, if the Son was sent out in the Father's name, especially the Son of the King, it was as if the King were standing right in front of you. His Son was like the King's avatar. The son was the avatar of the father. The son carried all the authority, all of the weight. There was no daylight between the son and the father in that capacity. 
So to be the son of the Father is to be completely identified with. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. And then he prayed in John 17 that we would become one with the Father the way he was one with the Father. This is not something that's beyond us. We can also be completely transformed. That's what communion is all about, to be transformed by the Father in such a way that everything we do will have that same authority, that same cast to it. The choices we make will be the choices the Father makes. So when we do this, when we bless those that curse, when we pray for those who persecute, we are acting as this Father's avatar here on earth, as if the Father were here, loving in this way. He prays that we can do this. The question, I suppose, is, what are we one with when we're one with the Father? And what Jesus says here, he causes the sun to rise on the good and the evil. He sends the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. Who is this Father? This Father is all about an indiscriminate love. Like sunshine, like rain, does it make any distinction where it falls? How could it possibly? This is one of the most beautiful poetic metaphors again, like salt and light that Jesus used, the rising of the sun and the falling of the rain, it can't possibly discriminate. It just falls. And if you're there, you get it. If you've found a way to hide from it, you don't. But this is the kind of love that the Father exhibits. It just is. And if you approach it, you get everything there is that the Father has to give. Whether you deserve it or not, it doesn't matter. It's your proximity and nothing else that determines such a thing. There's no degree. There's no moderation. There's no attenuation to God's love any more than you could turn down the sun. You can't do it. It's an unjust love. It's not looking at justice. It's not looking at any kind of performance. It just is. If we are one with, if we are the avatar of the Father, then we are the same as this kind of love, this perfect love, this completed love, this indiscriminate love. So Jesus says, if you only love those who love you, if you only greet your brother, and when greeting his brother just sounds like saying hi, nah, not when you get into the Eastern hospitality rites and rituals. That meant bringing them into your home and feeding them and doing everything that you could for them. That's greeting your brother. But if you only greet your brother, if you're only hospitable to your brother, if you only feed your brother, then what have you actually done? Anybody can do that. But when we move past that, right? What's the value if we're only doing it for those who love us? It's just transactional. It's quid pro quo. We're giving to get, or at least because we know we're going to get. It's like the first mile of obligation, right? The first mile that you are forced to take the burden. Nothing happens in the first mile. We have to understand this. Nothing of value happens because we're just following rules. It's the second mile when the obligation is released, when we are no longer under law, when we're free to choose again. Will we choose to love beyond the law, beyond the culture, beyond our personal preferences? Can we do that? Now something is happening in the second mile. If we can see anyone 
still see them as other, as less than, as an outcast, as an enemy, as undeserving, then we've never experienced oneness with the Father. Because once you have experienced that, everything changes. How can you keep them down on the farm once they've seen Paris, right? Once you've seen who the Father is, once you've experienced this love, it changes you. When we become sons of the Father, we become one with an indiscriminate, unjust love. And it's absolutely critical for us to see this. At the beginning of chapter 7, the first thing Jesus is going to say when we get there is do not judge. And it's the same concept that's going on here. If we can judge anyone as an enemy, anyone as undeserving, then we are living outside God's indiscriminate love. And the antidote to that is to learn to love and hate at the same time. What does that even mean, love and hate at the same time? It just simply means to love what we don't like. Can we love what we don't like? Can we see basic human connection beyond and through our negative feelings and not act on those feelings until they change? And the standard we use to judge others as fit or unfit, worthy, unworthy, right, is the law, isn't it? It's always the law in some way, shape, or form. It may have morphed into personal morality. It may have morphed into church doctrine. It may have morphed into what the individual church community teaches, but it's still about law. And so we're using the law as a standard to judge. But until we learn to fulfill law, right, to actually fulfill law as Jesus fulfilled it in love, then we can't love and hate at the same time. It won't be possible for us. There's a great story about, um, it's at Luke 7, about a Pharisee named Simon who asked Jesus to dinner. Now Simon is a Pharisee's Pharisee. He's wealthy, he's high up in the pecking order, and he is absolutely flawless when it comes to following the law. And so he judges himself as very righteous. And he asks Jesus over, but he doesn't look at Jesus as a peer. He doesn't look at Jesus as someone he really wants to learn from or respects Jesus. But he wants to see him up close. He wants to see what everything is going on about him. He's been hearing that he's a prophet. He looks down his nose at Jesus, but he needs to find out about him, so he asks him over. But he doesn't do the Eastern hospitality. He doesn't have anyone to wash his feet. He doesn't anoint his hair. He doesn't give him the common niceties that any host would give to someone that was coming over as an honored guest. But Jesus comes in, he takes the insults and doesn't even you know, blink at them. But then here comes this woman who is known as the greatest sinner in her village. We aren't told what she's sinning at. Could have been prostitution, we don't know. But anyway, she's a great sinner and she knows that Jesus is there and so she pushes her way through the crowd and when she gets into the room, she finds them and they're reclining at table. So, you know, there's a whole row of feet there that she comes up this horseshoe-shaped table and she finds Jesus and she kneels in front of his feet and she's weeping uncontrollably and she's wiping his feet with, his, with, her, t- with her hair and then she pours this expensive perfume on them and anoints them. Now immediately what's Simon thinking? If this guy was a prophet, then he would know who was touching him. So obviously he's not a prophet because the Pharisees would not be even have their robes brush against someone who was unlawful. Pharisee actually means the separated ones. And so now he is judging Jesus because of the person that he had already judged is actually being touched. What is the woman thinking? 
She's just grateful that Jesus didn't pull away, that he just stayed still and let her minister to him. See, Simon judged himself as righteous because of the law. And that righteousness made him arrogant. And it made him feel entitled. The woman knew that she wasn't righteous. She knew that to the depth of her being. That made her just grateful, again, that Jesus didn't pull away. It made her poor in spirit, that first beatitude. It made her anavim. It made her someone who was humble, understood the nature of her relationship, and all she had was gratitude for any kindness that was shown to her. Jesus uses this situation to expose the difference between gratitude and entitlement because we can't be both at the same time. It doesn't happen. Once you're gratitude, you can't feel entitlement. Truly being grateful is for something that you couldn't give yourself, right? If we can give it if, to ourselves, if we can buy it for ourselves, then it's not gratitude we feel. It can be a lot of different things, but it's not that. It can't be both at the same time. Simon is legally righteous. He's entitled, and he's arrogant, and he's judgmental. The woman is legally unrighteous, and she knows it, but she's grateful, and she's poor in spirit. The standard we use to judge is the view that we have of ourselves. Jesus says this, the standard you use to judge will be judged to yourself. That's what we use. That's our yardstick. If we believe that we've earned legal righteousness, we're never going to accept a love that rises and falls like sun and rain on those that we have judged undeserving, not entitled, right? We're not going to do it. We will not accept it. But God's love is non-judgmental. It's judgmentless. The sun and the rain describe God's love as it's indiscriminate. That beautiful image. The sun rising and the rain falling. Beautiful. But I want you to stop for just a second. We're caught up in the beauty of that image. We're caught up in the beauty of a love that is that all. But think about what that really means. How radically different that is. And how you really feel about a love like that. How do you really feel about a love that is completely unjust, that unbalances the scales of justice in favor of the beloved? Does that seem unfair to you? Does that seem not right to you? How you feel about it is going to depend on your own point of view. How we will view an indiscriminate or an unjust love depends on how we see ourselves. If we judge ourselves as legally entitled then we're going to feel outrage, indignation, disbelief, unacceptance. We're even going to deny that this is God's love at all. If we have judged ourselves as legally entitled, righteous, there's no way we're going to accept this love. But if we have judged ourselves as not legally entitled, what are we going to feel? I hope an immense relief, right? <laughs> immense relief, a joy, a gratitude for the gift that we could never give ourselves. We get this even though we don't deserve it. I've been teaching this love for about 25 years now. Long time. I've been teaching this love since the first night that I had my own experience with it and felt it for the first time myself. 
and it's been on my lips ever since. It's the one thing that if we get, everything else comes to us. And if we don't get it, we just are stopped in our tracks right there. But it's gotten me into a lot of trouble. I've been attacked over and over for preaching this kind of love. I remember at one point in one church, Marion looked at me and said, why does love make people so angry? <laughs> what was it about this love? Well, you know, I know what it is. I know what it gets into. I've been called a universalist, and if you don't know what that means, a universal reconciliation. Basically, everybody is reconciled to God. There really isn't any hell or any lasting hell. That's not me. That's not what I believe. But I understand why it looks like I believe that because of how much I push the Father's love. That's the most important thing that we can, we can understand. And I do understand, of course, how this love looks like it undercuts the meaning of the cross and it undercuts Christian theology. I understand those things. But that's not what is happening here. But if we are looking at our relationship with God from basically a legal perspective, then this love threatens everything we think we know and everything that we have built our security around. And I get all that. And I accept the attacks that I've had to go through to try to preach this love, to teach this love, to, to basically just carry the torch that Jesus started with is the way it looks to me. But why does it come against such opposition? Why is it so difficult? Because it's our point of view. If we're looking at things legally and we have done everything that we could to follow the law, we're not going to like this love. We're not going to like it. You know, I remember hearing so many people, Jeffrey Dahmer had a prison conversion. What, he gets to get into heaven now at the last minute after doing everything he did and I had to work this hard for 40 years? You know, we're not going to accept that. How do you see yourself? That's going to be the, 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 the big question. Elder brother of the prodigal, right? Same idea here. He was entitled because he stayed. He did everything right. His brother was not. We understand he couldn't accept this non-legal love. And yet most of us in here don't seem to have much of a problem with it. I don't know, maybe there's a sliding scale there, you know. But how do you see yourself? Your reaction to a love like sun and rain that Jesus is portraying here is going to reveal your judgment about yourself. If there's resistance to it, if it seems outrageous to you, if it just seems like it's not right, it's not fair, it's because you're still operating from a legal perspective. And that is sneaky. It gets down there into the core beliefs where we don't even know that it's operating. We think we've graduated from it, yet this is going to tell you, this visceral reaction is going to tell you where you really stand. Where do you actually see yourself? When Jesus says to be perfect as your Father is perfect in heaven, how do you react to that? Does it freak you out? <laughs> to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect? How can that be a possibly a command, right? Be imperfect and perfect at the same time. Do you just try harder to be good? Do you try harder to be right under the law, under your morals, under church doctrine? Or do you begin to simply realize that perfection is not about being right? It's not about being good. It's simply about being connected to what is right and what is good. Realizing that the deep sameness under all this diversity that we see around us is what we're a part of. 
And when we're connected to that, we're connected to what the Father sends sun and rain on indiscriminately. We're just a part of all of that. No more, no less. We can't brag about it because we didn't earn it, but we get it just by being present. My presence is so important. It's the realization that our identification in each other, in those moments when we really connect and we see the other as ourselves, that is perfect. That is right and good. Now, if we're trying to be perfect in that perfectionistic way that we all have, we never will be. And the best we will ever achieve by trying to be perfect is to begin to judge ourselves as entitled of something. But admitting the imperfection that all of us share as humans is the first step to perfection in gratitude. Until we can love and hate at the same time, until we can connect with things and with people that we don't even like, we will never know the truth of God's radical love. We can be imperfect and perfect at the same time in any one moment when we are connected. And we must be, because that's our human condition. Imperfect humans who are perfectly connected with the rising sun and the falling rain of a perfect love, that's our first glimpse when we learn that love and hate can also be done at the same time. This is where Jesus is trying to lead us. He's working so hard here. Read between the lines. Understand what's going on. Test your own reactions to these kinds of concepts, to things that are looked at this radically and this differently. And then allow yourself to be moved by the Spirit to go where Jesus is really trying to take us. Let's pray. Father, we want to be a grateful people. It's not that easy to do. Gratitude is something that we really can't manufacture, but we can fall into it. So help us to do more falling in love that will be a falling in gratitude, to just let ourselves be connected, to stop working so hard to make things happen and to just find ourselves in a space where they already have happened because everything that you give us has already been given. We know that. But it's hard for us to believe it when we're all working so hard. We want to move to the next level, Lord, but it's a difficult one. Help us to push through the feelings, to remember your words and your principles so that we can act in ways that give us the time for the transformation to take place. That's it. Treat our relationships as that precious, that we would be willing to do that, even the ones we don't like. Thank you for doing this with us first so that we can do it following after, Father. In other words, we love because you loved us first. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand.